I stay up many, many, my, my day begins and ends at any time. So uh, I have to practically do everything, all the planning, all the orders, everything. Got some very good men. But the point I was trying to make was that if Doe resigns, the vice president resigns, and leave the government as it is in the hands of the legislature with the speaker in charge until we got to Moreover, that would be a settlement. The chief of staff, Dubai, leaves the country. The deputy chief of staff can pull whatever portion of the army is left over. That would be fine. Um, this is not, there will not be a military council. We want to see democracy. We want to see the ballot box right away. But we want to make absolutely sure that we have control of the situation on the ground before we begin to talk about things that are not possible. Um, we don't want to see a vacuum. I have no intentions of coming in and suspending the entire constitution. After all, we, we are coming in with the gun. Uh, our legitimacy will not come from the present constitution because we're going in with the gun. Uh, and so no one expects us to, uh, uh, to, to leave the entire constitution in place because in fact we will be an illegitimate government. But what we would do is suspend those portions of the constitution that have to do with elections that may tend to illegitimize our being in the country. And um, we're gonna go through the normal legal constitutional process and try to build a system and go to the ballot box as soon as possible because I realize, because I'm not new to this whole process, that in order to get aid and assistance and uh, for, in fact, the American the American consumption, Congress has its own operation, the administration will be saying one thing, and ultimately the purse is controlled by Congress and they, a lot of congressional individuals that have specific interests in Liberia. We want to work along with Congress and for the American people to understand that this is not a bunch of uh, headhunters out here in uh, West Africa trying to shoot up a country for power. I have no interest in that. Um, I just want to talk constructively with uh, the United States uh, and even deepen the relationship with the United States. My education is American education, so let's talk American education. Um, I'm willing to debate anybody, <laughs> you know, that's plain and simple. Look, um, five, ten years into the future, what will like? I hope we can be a model, a model, a real model of democracy in Africa. This is why I talk about a deepening of relationship with the United States. I'm going to try to catch whatever administration there is. Now we're going to start with the Bush administration by the very little parts to really do something. I want more now for less 10 years down the road. I have a background in economics. You know, why give me rice when I can grow rice? Maybe if you show me and give me the technology to grow rice, you will have to send me PL480 rice. I mean, why send me beef from the United States? We can grow cows right out here. Why send me chicken from the United States? Uh, you know, if you do, if, if we if we sit down now and do what's supposed to be done properly, 10 years from now, you probably could reduce foreign aid to Liberia by 50, 
because that investment would have had a yield tenfold. So 10 years from now, we hope to see a democracy of credibility on this African continent that will serve as a model for other African countries because I have a problem with a lot of the governments around me. Serious problem with their treatment, their, their lack of responsibility for, uh, for human rights, disrespect and regard for individuals. I've been around West Africa here in a few jails, arrested temporarily and left. The jails are deplorable, the people suffer, they, it's just terrible. So I want Liberia to do what we've always wanted to do over the past hundred plus years. And I'm going to need some serious American help. There's going to be no top of the table discussion. We're going to get inside this thing and see what we can do. Forces 5, Part 1. I am your co-host, Dimitri. And today, we are going to dive into the largest, most complex, and most scandalous segment of the Demon Forces series so far. Now, we last left off with the brutal capture, torture, and death of Liberian President Samuel Kenyon Doe on September 9th, 1990. And if you've listened to both parts of Demon Forces 4, and if you haven't, I highly recommend that you do, before listening to this, you will remember the intrigues, the mysteries, the coincidences, and the plot surrounding the death of President Doe. And as we've sketched out in this series, as exhaustively as I can, uh, this is part of a pattern in Liberian history from the period of the late Cold War onwards, the targeting of a Liberian president who has fallen out of favor with the United States, Liberia's historical big brother. In Demon Forces 2, we covered the assassination and overthrow of President William Tolbert. In Demon Forces 3, while it did not take place in Liberia, we covered the Liberian connections to the assassination of President Thomas Sankara of Burkina Faso, and we laid out how that was a multifaceted conspiracy between France, the United States, certain Liberian expats, including Charles Taylor and Prince Johnson, and also the president of La Côte d'Ivoire, Félix Houphouët-Boigny, and also his technical son-in-law at that point, and Sankara's right-hand man, Blaise Compare, who was involved in the overthrow of Sankara and then himself became president for over two decades. Now, it was very important in Demon Forces 4 to really examine all the different factors on the Liberian side to get as firm grounding as we can in this very, very complicated conflict. And as we're going to see today and the next several episodes, this first Liberian civil war would have to be rated up there with one of the more inscrutable, complicated, multifaceted conflicts in recent memory. Though, 
as we get deeper into this batch of episodes, you're going to see there are many, many synchronicities to other armed conflicts around the world in the 1990s. In fact, this almost becomes the new template in the post-Cold War environment. And as we are going to see in due time, this is not just sort of a literary similarity or a thematic similarity. There are very real, very ominous, and very far-reaching connections between many of the conflicts that were erupting in the early 1990s. But for today, we are going to mostly stay focused on Liberia and what happens after President Doe is killed and the war metastasizes into a longer-running, intractable conflict with many, many different factions vying for power. Now, I've said this at, I think, the beginning of every single new chapter of Demon Forces, but it does bear repeating that part of the reason I'm going to go through this history with such a fine-tooth comb is because if you read a lot of the mainstream journalistic accounts of this conflict, the academic accounts, uh, certainly a lot of the political commentary that was given at the time and later around the whole thing, there was a lot left to be desired. In terms of accurately mapping out the causality and the main forces that were driving this whole thing, there are a lot of different directions that people tend to take it. And throughout this series, I've been trying in my own way to sort of debunk some of the more simplistic narratives, or one could say the more convenient ones, particularly from a Western perspective. This would include all kinds of essentialist presumptions about tribal societies in West Africa and the sort of inevitable nature of ethnic conflict and poverty and disorganization and all manner of excuses that try to put the Liberian conflict in a kind of a neat little box so that we can react to it appropriately. So once again, I am armed with what I think are some of the best sources out there about the first Liberian civil war, chief among which I'll be citing heavily from again, uh, two centuries of US military operations in Liberia, challenges of resistance and compliance by Dr. Niels Hahn, and also something I started reading from in Demon Forces 4, Stephen Ellis's The Mask of Anarchy, The Destruction of Liberia and the Religious Dimension of an African Civil War. In this first part, I'm probably going to be bouncing between these two sources. I think that Niels Hans, I've said it before, I'll say it again, is far and away probably the strongest book. If I had to recommend a single book to read about the history of Liberia, and particularly the U.S.-Liberian relationship, I would go with two centuries of U.S. military operations in Liberia by Niels Hahn. But Ellis's book, The Mask of Anarchy, uh, does provide some very valuable color and a little more of an anthropological kind of lens and gets into some of also the kind of nitty-gritty personal conflicts and narratives which as we're going to see, like in previous chapters, 
is very important um, in concert with the kind of broader structural analysis of what went on and the grand geopolitical material incentives uh, and power plays involved. So we have those two books. And of course, I've been leaning on it more and more heavily, but the Liberian Truth and Reconciliation Commission from the late 2000s is something I'm going to be splicing in audio from. And this, in fact, is a huge uh, source of Han's book. And one of the reasons why it is so good is because it is directly quoting from the testimony of Liberians who were actually there and involved in these things and saw certain things and were given a forum in the late 2000s to proverbially spill the tea and say how things really went down. Last time, I think we got a lot of mileage out of the late, great Emmanuel Bowyer, President Doe's information minister and spokesman, essentially. He revealed many interesting things about interacting with the U.S. government and the Bush administration in 1990 as this war was starting. And as we heard in Demon Forces 4 Part 1 on the Liberian delegation to Washington, D.C. in June of 1990, Emmanuel Bowyer was party to several very ominous conversations with members of the U.S. government first with Deputy Secretary of State Larry Eagleburger, who is going to come up down the line in this batch of episodes, and then with a very deep cut as far as deep state actors is concerned, the Deputy National Security Advisor David Charles Miller, who told the Liberian delegation straight up, you see that phone over there? I could pick it up right now and call Charles Taylor and stop him in his tracks. But we're not going to do that because we're sick of Samuel Doe and we want to get rid of him. And Charles Taylor has the military advantage. He told Emmanuel Bowyer and others this in Oliver North's old office, in the executive office building, which is uh, certainly thematically appropriate, actually very relevant to what we're going to be getting into. So we already have a little bit of a sense of the U.S. government's double dealing in allowing this conflict... I mean, I'm probably being too generous there by saying allowing because they were also covertly stoking it, but definitely allowing and seemingly wanting this conflict to explode into an all-out genocidal war that would tear Liberia apart and burn it to the ground. We also had heard in the previous installment from Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs, Herman Cohen, and also former Liberia ambassador Jim Bishop, who come off as slightly less evil than the whiz kids of the George H.W. Bush administration. But even they point out certain things, like how on the deputies committee at the National Security Council, uh, then deputy NSA Bob Gates, who was formerly Bill Casey's number two at the CIA during the Iran-Contra scandal basically denigrated the U.S.-Liberian relationship as the Cold War was coming to a close and said, essentially, we don't need them anymore and we shouldn't treat them any different than any other country. We also covered a little bit, and this will co we'll come back around to this today, the 
curious position of the U.S. government on the high-value intelligence installations that they had in Liberia, which were very important to the U.S. during the Cold War. Arguably, one of the most important things about the U.S.-Liberian relationship is that the top-secret U.S. military installations like the Omega Navigation System, the VOA, Voice of America Transmitter Towers, the Diplomatic Relay Station, uh, all remained protected. And part of the reason, I think we could argue, that William Tolbert, the president in the 70s, was assassinated is because he started to pull away in a foreign policy sense from the U.S. and started making certain overtures diplomatically, economically, etc., to various Eastern Bloc communist countries, which Charles Taylor said later on was like a red line. And not long after that, well, he was killed. So that was the lay of the land up until about 1989 when President Doe, after coming to power with full U.S. support, started to get a little bit more paranoid about the U.S.-Liberian relationship and he started himself making some overtures to countries. In fact, David Charles Miller says when the Liberians meet him in 1990 that they know that Samuel Doe went and got some second-rate weapons from communist Romania, which at that point, Ceausescu had died about six months prior, also in a covert U.S.-backed coup, by the way. And actually, as we'll probably get into the audio of later, uh, certain people saw that as a last straw, that Doe was turning to a communist country for help to get weapons, when the Cold War was almost over, it was obvious that the communists were losing and about to be sort of shoved into the dustbin of history. And that was just a little bit of a step too far. There were other things as well involving Doe's money that we might touch on later because that sent me down a particular rabbit hole that, like so many other things uh, coming up here in this time period, are just infinitely fascinating and disturbing and weird and give us a little peek behind the curtain into how the world actually works, not just West Africa, but the whole world in the 1990s with the defeat of communism in most of Europe and then by proxy in South America and Africa and the global South. So we will begin mapping out the situation on the ground in Liberia going into 1991, just so you can get your bearings and understand the different forces at play. And then we're going to start to venture a little bit beyond that. And dear listener, if you thought that the first four installments of Demon Forces contained mind-bendingly dark and sinister revelations about how the United States uses its power around the world. You have seen nothing yet. It is about to get very, very sus. So strap yourselves in, because now we are going to take a little trip into Taylor Land for Demon Forces 5, Part 1, A Celebration of Markets. start here reading a brief segment from Niels Hahn's book from chapter 5, Intensification of the Armed Conflicts, Antagonistic Forces. He says, 
After the death of President Doe, there was a short struggle for the presidency between Vice President Harry Moniba, General David Nimley, and Prince Johnson. According to the Constitution, the Vice President should become President. However, General Nimley claimed to be the acting President through the National Defense Council, which he had established, while at the same time, Prince Johnson declared himself President of Liberia. There were tensions between Prince Johnson's INPFL and ECOMOG. ECOMOG had refused to launch an attack on the NPFL ordered by Prince Johnson, who therefore arrested more than 60 ECOMOG soldiers. Gaddafi of Libya and President Jerry Rawlings of Ghana had a relatively good relationship, and the U.S. government was concerned about political links between the NPFL and the government of Ghana. Therefore, by the end of September, General Arnold Quenu was replaced by Nigerian Major General Joshua Nimiel Doganyaro, who was a close friend of Nigerian President Babangida. General Doganyaro succeeded in uniting the INPFL and the AFL with ECOMOG and launched Operation Liberty in October 1990. Taylor received new military supplies, which improved his military capacity. Several, quote, francophone states in ECOWAS, notably Burkina Faso and Cote d'Ivoire, supported Taylor. Libya had increased support for the NPFL because Gaddafi saw ECOMOG as a dangerous development in Africa. Operation Liberty resulted in weeks of fighting, which destroyed much of the infrastructure in Monrovia and the suburbs, including sewer systems, water supply, and the electricity network. Hundreds of thousands of people fled the country or were housed in internally displaced people camps. By the end of the battle, the NPFL was pushed about 20 kilometers outside of Monrovia. The IGNU, the interim government of national unity headed by Amos Sawyer, was flown in by ECOMOG and announced itself as the official government of Liberia on November 22, 1990. Sawyer did not trust the AFL and moved his government to the Ducker Hotel, situated close to the U.S. Embassy. His auxiliary force of a thousand soldiers, named the Black Berets, was trained in Guinea as a special protection force for the IGNU. All the armed factions except for the NPFL accepted the IGNU and Sawyer as the interim head of state. The NPFL established another Liberian government named the National Patriotic Reconstruction Assembly Government, or NPRAG, with its seat in Banga, about three hours' drive from Monrovia. Charles Taylor was the elected president of the NPRAG, and the NPFL was referred to as the Army of the NPRAG. The NPFL did not see Sawyer as a puppet of the U.S. because of his leftist orientation. He was seen as an, quote, appropriate man for the U.S. government because Sawyer was a respected academic and politician in West Africa, however, without widespread support from the Liberian population. The U.S. could quickly get rid of Sawyer after he fulfilled the job. In contrast to the IGNU, which only controlled the Monrovia area, NPRAG controlled about 95% of Liberia, which became known as, quote, Greater Liberia, or to other people, Taylorland. Business was established with companies from all over the world, which financed the NPRAG, and the port in Buchanan became strategic for import and export. The economic system of the war economy inspired some scholars to use Liberia as a case study of, quote, shadow economies, clandestine economies, and patrimonial states, 
controlled by, quote, warlords and strongmen. NPRAG favored liberal capitalism and was prepared to do business with companies from all over the world. In particular, French companies became involved in doing business with the NPRAG. According to Lester Hyman, the United States was concerned about the, quote, support that Taylor garnered from Ivorian and French business people because they feared that if he, Taylor, won the presidency, he would, quote, tilt toward the French rather than toward Americans. Now, I'm just going to pause right there and say that we are going to return shortly to the subject of both the shadow economy of Taylorland and also the myriad French connections to all of this. For access to the full-length episode and upcoming installments of Demon Forces, subscribe to the Hour of Frequency at patreon.com slash subliminaljihad.